Welcome, and thanks for listening to the New Life Christian Ministries podcast. If you'd like more information about New Life or for more podcasts and other media, go to newlifexn.org. Good morning. Almost, almost afternoon, 10 minutes till afternoon. My name is Mark Lutz. I'm one of the youth directors here at New Life Christian Ministries. And if you don't, if no one has an issue, which truthfully, probably no one will shout out that they do, um, I'm going to take off my shoes um, because I have preached two messages in these shoes and they have man heels and they hurt wicked bad. Um, and I'm going to preach without them because I jumped around the last message and my feet hurt super bad. So I'm going to get rid of them um, and we're going to preach without shoes on this morning. I do it a lot at youth group, so it'll be okay. Um, I work right here at New Life Christian Ministries with Relevant, um, which is our student ministry here at New Life. I work with 6th, 7th, and 8th grade students specifically. Um, and actually, I work with our leadership development team as well. And something that I just I want to point out, I didn't do this at other messages, but here on Sunday morning, Saturday nights, we have an awesome worship team, don't we? They're incredible, yeah. And uh, yeah, they're really, they're incredible. And on top of that, Pastor Brad today is sick, and his whole family has been sick all week. And you would never know that from his singing voice, because his singing voice is awesome. But when he came here to do infant and child dedications, it sounded like he was just about to die, right as he was about to bless children. And he wouldn't touch them, because he's still sick, and yet it's still just incredible, his singing voice, and, and what a blessing that is. Here at New Life, we started a new series last week called Heads Up. And we started talking about prayer. We started talking about that with our senior pastor, Pastor Chris. Um, and Pastor Chris was here. He would say this. If you're a new time, first-time guest today, we're so excited to have you. And I'd like to say that too. If you're a first-time guest today, we're so excited to have you. Um, we prepared for you. We've thought about you. We've prayed for you. And we're just so excited that you decided to come out and join us this morning and worship with us this morning. Um, and, and so we're just, we're just pumped that you're here. And Pastor Chris, who's usually here on Sunday mornings, isn't here right now because he's actually in Cuba ministering to pastors who are in Cuba, and he'll be there uh, until next weekend. He's coming back on the 20th. He made it there safely and everything, which is super awesome as well. And we started off this series with Pastor Chris next, last week on prayer, and he began by talking to us about the Lord's Prayer. If you're unfamiliar with the Lord's Prayer, you can find it in the Bible, in the book of Matthew, that's right at the beginning of the New Testament. It's in chapter 6, it's verses 9 through 14. If you don't want to go and do that, it's easier actually, you can watch the whole message, go to newlifexn.org, and you can watch the whole message from the first week in this series on prayer by Pastor Chris. It's an awesome message, I encourage you, if you missed last week, go back and watch that. It'll make more sense about what I'm about to talk about. In that message, Pastor Chris introduced five prayer topics and five elements of prayer that he pulled from us from, uh, from the Lord's Prayer. And one of those topics was adoration, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, adoration is a big word. It's what I like to call a church word. And I grew up in the church, but I also learned how to sling around church words pretty well and keep them in their proper context without ever knowing what their definition was. I never understood what they meant. I was just really good at using them. In fact, I was really good at using them all the way up until college when I started to have to research their definitions. So when I got this assignment to preach, and I was super excited to have the opportunity, and he asked me to preach on adoration, I was super excited about that, but I also had no clue what the word meant, because I'm not real great with the English language. And like every great biblical scholar that's about my age, I did what we all do, and that is Googled it. So I Googled it, 
At bigger, bigger laugh from, from previous, or you guys don't think that's funny. Blasphemer on stage. Um, I Googled it, and I found uh, one of my best friends, once again, when it comes to words, and that's dictionary.com, right? It's dictionary. Who would use an actual dictionary? That's ridiculous. Webster's way too old for me. And so I, I go to dictionary.com. And so I looked it up, and I looked up what adoration meant. Dictionary.com says this about adoration. Adoration is the act of paying honor as to a divine being. Worship reverent homage, or fervent or devoted love. And so I, I read that, and I started writing my message. It usually doesn't take me a lot of time to write a sermon, but as I was getting into it, I wrote like the first paragraph. I read this definition. I wrote the definition down, and I was like, man, this is going to take some thought. Not that my messages don't take thought, because they do. They usually flow easier than this one did. And I just began to meditate on this definition, thinking about what exactly does this mean for us, especially if adoration is part of prayer. And I boiled it down to two things, that adoration has something to do with love and respect, or love in fearful respect. Also, adoration has this little bit in it called worship, which I think is where love and fearful respect meet, by the way, is true worship. But it has this little bit in it where it says it's worship as well. And I was like, oh my goodness. If we could get this as a body, as believers in Jesus, if we could get this, this is, this is a game changer. And why? Because oftentimes in our culture, we come into church and we believe that worshiping Jesus, worshiping God begins and ends on Sunday morning. It begins and ends inside this building with musical instruments, guitars, whatever we use, hymnals or words up on a screen. It begins and it ends there. We worship here and then we go home. And worship isn't part of our life except on weekend services. And that's what we believe. But when I read this, I was like, oh my goodness, if adoration is part of prayer and adoration is worship, then worship should be part of prayer. And I know from the word of God that prayer should be part of our everyday life if we're a follower of Jesus. So that means that worship should be part of our everyday life. It doesn't begin and end here. And if we can get this, then we can dispel this poisonous and deluded attitude that worship only happens in this building or only happens in another building and only at weekend services. So that was so impressive to me. It was so impressed on my heart, so convicting to me as a follower of Jesus that I just, I couldn't help but pull our take-home point from that. And our take-home point here at New Life is the one point we seek for you to take home and live out in the coming week. It's the one point I seek to remember and take home, live out in the coming week. It's also the one thing my whole message is going to hinge on. And this week it is this. Adoration is love and respect in action. Adoration is love and and respect in action. When I began to think about that, I began to think about stories. If you've heard me preach, then you know that I love to tell stories. It's my nature. It's my wheelhouse. I love telling stories. And I began to think about stories from the Word of God. And one story came up to me. It's one of the earliest stories I learned as a kid. It's also one of the stories that's oldest in all of the Bible. It's one of the oldest books in the Bible as well. I learned this story in a damp concrete basement at St. Peter's Reformed Church in Zillianople. Truth be told, I like the story more than I like the story of Jesus. I know that seems weird, but this story was just a story as a kid that I really dug. I thought it was a great story. And I remembered it vividly from the time I was a young kid. 
I remember being able to quote stuff from it and tell it in full detail as I grew older. I love this story, and it's the story of Job. Now, Job comes to us, alarmingly, from a book in the Bible called Job, right? So it's easy to find. If you want to read about Job, then just oh, look in your Bible until you find a book called Job, and you can read about Job there. And in the opening of the book of Job, a main character shows up, and guess what? It's a guy named Job as well. And it opens up with this guy, Job, and he's, he's this amazing man, unbelievable. In fact, the Bible tells us that Job is blameless. He fears and he loves the Lord. He shuns and he hates evil. He has complete and total integrity. Com complete and total integrity. Hates all evil. Shuns all evil. Loves and fears the Lord. He's sold out. This man loves everything there is to love about God. He, he's incredible. And on top of that, the Bible then tells us that he's immensely blessed. He's very wealthy. In fact, it tells us that he's the wealthiest man in all of the area, all the land. He has vast flocks, tons of land. And on top of that, a large family. And get this, his family gets along. He doesn't just have a large family, he has a blessed family. The Bible tells us that his sons would hold feasts in their homes that would last days. And all of his sons and daughters and their family would show up at the house and they would feast for days at a time. Now, can you imagine your family, extended family, mind you, getting together and feasting and hanging out for days? And then when you get all said and done with it, you all clean up, deciding to do it again next week? That's why most of us see a lot of our relatives just on Christmas and Easter, because we can do it twice a year. And we see the other half of them on Thanksgiving, once a year, right? And I understand some of you have great families, but I understand how crazy my extended family can be from time to time. And if you're watching this, I love you guys, but I understand how crazy it can be sometimes. This family was blessed. They loved to be together. They spent, every, they spent all this time together. For days they feasted. Week in, week out, they spent time together. And it says in the word of God that Job would daily make sacrifices on behalf of each of his children in fear that they had sinned against God without knowing it which tells me that he knew that his kids were following in his footsteps. They were following God as well. But he wanted to be careful because although they didn't sin purposefully, they were good about that. He wanted to be careful and make sure they didn't sin without knowing it. So he made sacrifices on their behalf. They were good people as well. What an incredible family. Incredible man. And then the next two characters show up. One of them is God. And the next one is what the Bible calls the accuser or Satan, who I'll probably call the devil this morning. And they're in God's throne room. Satan comes before God, and he says to God, I've been going all throughout the land, roaming about the earth. And God says to the accuser, says to the devil, have you seen my man Job? Have you seen him? Because there's no man in all the world like him. Now, I'd love for God to say that about me. I don't think he would, but that's incredible. There's no man like him. He's righteous. He's blameless. He loves me and all that he does. Incredible. He starts talking about Job in this way. And the devil, who's an accuser, points his hand back at God, and he says to God, well, the only reason that Job does that is because of how much you've given him. If you stripped him of all of his worldly possessions, then he would surely curse you and leave you. And so the devil leaves with permission to afflict Job's worldly possessions. Job comes back on center stage. As we see him on center stage, he's standing in a field. 
And in this field, one of his servants runs up to him out of breath. Job, I was serving you. I was in a field watching over your herds when a group of men came out and they slaughtered all of your animals and they slaughtered all of your servants. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Wealth gone. As he's standing there, quite literally, he's still standing here, the Bible tells us, another man, another servant runs up to him and says, Job, I was standing in your fields watching over your flocks of sheep and fire from heaven, fell, fire from heaven, guys, fire from heaven, fell down and killed everybody and all your flocks. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he's still talking to the second servant, a third servant runs up to him. And out of breath, he says, Job, while I was watching over your herds of camels, some raiders came out and they stole your camels, killing all your servants, and I'm the only one who escapes to tell you. Job goes from one of the wealthiest, the wealthiest man in the area to nothing. He has nothing. His wealth is stripped from him in a matter of three quick conversations, one right after the other, before he has a chance to respond or a chance for one of them to leave. And as the third one stands there out of breath, a fourth servant runs up and says to Job, Job, your family was in their house feasting together, and a wind struck all four corners of the home, and the house collapsed. All of your children and servants are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job falls to his knees. The word of God tells us that he shaves his head, that he tears his robe, and in mourning, he cries out to God. Amongst losing everything, except for his wife, mind you, which, keep in mind, the only thing that was protected was his physical body, which tells me that his wife was considered, at this point, part of his physical body, which has huge implications for marriage in our culture, but it's a sermon for a different day. Job cries out this from his knees. The Lord has given me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. A prayer of love and fearful respect amongst total loss, if there ever was one. The story doesn't end there. If you know the story, you know it picks back up in the throne room where the accuser approaches God again, and he leaves with permission to afflict Job's physical body but not kill him. When Job comes back on center stage, we see him sitting in a pile of ashes, covered from head to foot in sores, open sores. Scraping those sores with a broken piece of pottery in his hand. Now mind you, what would afflict his physical body now can afflict his wife, although his wife is not afflicted with the same sores that his physical body is with, she has turned to betray him. In chapter 2, she says to Job, curse God and die, as there's now a rift and a separation between him and his wife. Because Satan has had the opportunity to afflict his physical being and his relationships as well. So with nothing, his wife against him, sitting in ashes and filth, with pottery in his hand, scraping his open sores, Job says this, should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? Job continues in this state. And for the next 36 chapters, we see his friends and his wife come and talk with him. 
They try to convince him of the things he must have done wrong or the reasons why he's cursed by God. Surely it's something that Job has done. Surely Job needs to repent for some horrible sin that he has committed that's caused him to end up cursed by God, have everything taken from him, and be in this pitiful state. He's a cursed human being in their eyes. Everyone has left his side. His friends come to him only to condemn him. And in the end of this time, after 36 chapters, Job cries out to God asking, why? And after 37 chapters now of silence, except for God talking to the accuser, God shows up and begins to enter the conversation. He enters a conversation now with Job. Job sitting in ashes, covered in sores, sharp shard of pottery in hand. God speaks to him and answers him. It says this in Job chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Oh, what it must have been to know the whirlwind. I wish I would have known what it was like to know the whirlwind. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? Who supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning star sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst forth from the womb? And as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness, for I, looked, for I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores, I said, this far and no further will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. This is the beginning of chapter 38. From chapter 38 on through there and chapter, through chapter 41, God continues to question Job in a similar fashion, starting off with things like, do you know how I, were you there when I created everything? Do you know how I stopped the waves? He continues, do you know how I make the sun rise and how I make the sun set? Do you know where I store the hail at? Do you know where I store the reserves of rain at? Please, Job, answer me if you know these things. If you're as powerful as me, if you're knowledgeable as me, if you were there when it was just me and the water in the dark before anything else when I flung the stars into the sky and placed the moon where it belongs could you please tell me for then you have a right to speak and after three chapters of God speaking to Job from the whirlwind Job responds in the Job chapter 42 verses 1 through 6 and it says this then Job replied to the Lord I know that you can do anything and that no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about. Things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen and I will speak. I have some questions for you and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before. But now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said. And I sit in dust and ashes and show my repentance. If you know the story of Job, then like me, you know this isn't the end for him. You know that God rewards him for his faithfulness, for not abandoning God. 
you know that he's given back everything that was taken from him and then some in the second half of his life. The Bible says that right after this in chapter 42. It's the rest of chapter 42. It's the end of the book of Job. Job gets everything back. But Job doesn't know that. When Job utters these words, when he prays to God, when he speaks to him as God speaks to him out of the whirlwind, he doesn't know that. He's asked why. He isn't told why. But in the face of the whirlwind, in fear and in love, he accepts where he is in life and is called to action in that place. To accept God for who he is and all of his power and might and glory. What an incredible prayer of adoration that must have been. Job had no idea that his life would be restored. He very well could have thought that he will live and die in filth from head to toe, covered in ashes and sores, with his family dead, his wife abandoned him, his friends betrayed him, viewed as a cursed man on the streets of his town and city. And there he would die alone, knowing nothing but the fact that God still loved him. We can learn so much about adoration, love and respect in action from a man named Job who had everything, who lost everything, and who yet amongst all of that still had everything. When I look at this story and I think to my life, and I think about adoration, and I think about love and respect leading us to action, I know that when we pray, that the way that we pray ought to lead us to change our lives. That when we enter the throne room of God, that we should enter it in such a way that we enter with love and fearful respect for him. But I don't just say those things casually or without weight. I say them because I've experienced them in my own life. And that story comes from my junior year of college when I was 20 years old. Now, the youth ministry knows a lot about my life because I'm very transparent with our students. But you do not. You would know more if I preached more, but you're going to know more about my life today. As a 20-year-old and as a junior in college, I was far from God. I had spent the past two years walking away from him purposefully. I had gone through a series of bad relationships, and I had made a series of just terrible decisions. I was living very far from him. Granted, I was still volunteering at a youth group, leading middle school guys. I was at Geneva College. I was one year away from graduating with a youth ministry degree. I was one year and a couple of months away from coming here to New Life to be the new youth director and work with students. But at that point in my life, it had been two years since I had spoken an honest word with my father. I had grown up in the church. I had gone to Sunday school my whole life. I had gone to youth group. I knew all of the answers. I had worshiped God wholeheartedly. I believed that I was called into full-time ministry. But every day I woke up, I wondered whether or not God existed, whether or not the Bible was true. And every day when I woke up, the only thing that kept me from going out and telling people that I didn't believe any of it anymore was my own personal fear of being a failure was my own personal fear that when I went and I told people that I didn't even believe in God and I didn't believe in the Bible and when I wanted to leave it all behind was that people would view me, Mark Lutz, as a failure. And I didn't want that to happen. I was more terrified of that than I was living a lie. So I chose instead to live a lie. 
And so for two years, I opened up my Bible only to prepare for class or to prepare for preaching, never to encounter God on my own. Never once in those two years did I utter a genuine prayer for anything except something selfish for myself. I made terrible decisions purposefully. And the people that I encountered personally in my life and the people that I encountered who were strangers and acquaintances, I led further from the one true God instead of closer to him. And there are opportunities that I will never get back and regrets that I will always live with. Those two years are years that I look back on and I refer to as the dark night of my soul. And it sounds a little dramatic, but it was just the truth. And I remember as a junior, I had made a decision to separate myself from a couple of relationships. I had broke up with somebody, I was single again, and I looked ahead in my life and I said, Mark, you're heading for rock bottom. I was wise enough to know that the road that I was on was not leading me anywhere good. I was wise enough to know that the road that I was on was going to destroy me. And as a disclaimer, guys, I hate being the hero of my own story. I once had a wise friend who told me, Mark, when you're preaching, never be the hero of your own story, and so I never am. But I don't know how any better way to describe adoration to you than through this story in my life. So for this one time, as a unique moment, I have to be the hero of this story, because God really is the hero. But as I was in this spot, I said, God, I, I know that I need to turn back to you. But I had spent so long away from him that I had no clue where to start. Truth be told, I was just oblivious. I didn't even know where to begin. I grew up in the church. I didn't know where to begin to restore a relationship with God. I could preach about it. I had no clue how to live it because I lived a lie for so long. But I knew I didn't want to go where I was headed. So I picked up my Bible in my basement bedroom at my parents' house at 20 years old, and I flipped it open to the center. And I thought, whatever I flip to, I'll read. And I flipped open to the book of Psalms. Because if you flip your Bible open to the middle nine times out of ten, that's where you're going to land. And I don't like Psalms because I don't like poetry. But I flipped back to the first chapter in the book of Psalms and I began to read. Because I just thought, it's a shot in the dark and it's a place to start. And in that bedroom that night, I read these words. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. That's not the end of chapter 1, but that particular night, that is all the further that I got. Because after I read those words, I fell to my knees in my parents' basement, and I began to weep. And I began to cry. And I cried out to God. And I said, God, I don't know what to do, but I know I'm not a tree planted by streams of water anymore. Not only do I not bear fruit in season, I don't bear fruit at all, and any fruit I do bear is just rotten. Father, I'm the one who stands with mockers. I sit with the wicked. I follow the ways of the unrighteous. I'm doing everything that this passage tells me not to do. I don't identify with any of the good stuff in here. Save me, Dad. 
And as I fell to the ground and I began to weep, and I'm not talking about sort of crying, I'm talking about snot from my face to the floor, playing like a banjo crying. I was uncontrollably weeping, unconsolable on the ground, as a 20-year-old man on the floor in my parents' house, desperate for a savior. And in that place, God met me. And I cried out to him, and in that place, the Savior of the universe, the God who threw the stars into the sky, met me. And he may have not spoken to me through a whirlwind, but he spoke to me. And it may have not been audibly, but in that place and in my weeping, he met me. And the only two things that I can ever pull out of that was two emotions. And that was horrifying fear and incredible love. And the horrifying fear was because in that moment, I recognized that the God that entered the room with me that night, because of who I was and because of what I had done, deserved to kill me and send me to hell. I did not deserve to get up off that floor. I deserved to be struck dead. And I deserved to be separated from him. But at the same time, the overwhelming love was the fact that I knew he cared for me. And his son's blood was shed on my behalf. It was not on anybody else, and it was for everyone, but it was for me. For me, on my behalf, is this wretched, horrible, terrible sinner who couldn't get off his parents' floor at 20 years old, terrified to look up in fear of the Savior, but relieved because he loved me so much to kill his own son for me so that my transgressions and my sin would be covered that I would be blotted out and robed in white so that I could be part of his family and join in the feast in heaven. <sighs> oh man, what a blessed day it was. And I got up from that floor and I never was the same person again. And I can tell you that, and you can believe me or not, but I have proof. You can go to my parents' house and you can walk into their downstairs bedroom, it's a spare room now, and still on the white walls is pencil of all of the scriptures over the next weeks and months that I read and wrote on my walls. As each day I woke up and I quit caring about members of the opposite gender and I quit caring about what other people thought and I started reading my Bible. And every day I decided to meditate on the word of God both day and night. And I would read the word of God during the day and I would bring it home at night and the things that would stick out to me, I would write on my walls and I desperately needed it because I was having horrible nightmares. And I would write the verses from Proverbs that say, if you meditate on, on the law of the Lord that you'll get good sleep. If you'll do the things of God that'll bless your sleep. And I needed them. I needed them because I needed sleep. And so I wrote them on my walls and each night I read them and I prayed them. And there was passages about worrying, and I wrote them on my walls, and at night I would read them and I would pray them. And I never was the same. That person that I knew is not the person I am today. And thank God for that. Because he saved me from myself. And in that moment, it was the truest sense of worship that I have ever experienced this side of eternity. And I would sooner doubt the existence of you in front of me, then I would doubt the existence of God on high because of that night. That's adoration. Love and respect that drives us to action. 
So what does that mean for us today? Because does that mean that every time I pray, we're doing this prayer challenge as a church. Every time I pray, that every time I get up, I can't be the same person ever again? Maybe, but I don't think so. I think what it means is that adoration has got to become part of what we do daily, though. I think worshiping God when we pray has got to become part of what we do daily. And I think the thing that's standing in the way of that more than anything else is our culture. Because we come from a capitalist and consumerist worldview that says, what am I going to get out of anything that I do? We want to know what will benefit us and what we are going to get out of things. And so even as I look at this prayer challenge and I realize that I can pray for 10 minutes a day or an hour a day, the question that comes to our minds often is not the right question, but the question that comes to our minds is, if I pray for an hour a day rather than 10 minutes a day, what will I get out of it in my life? And so we go into prayer and we expect to get something from God because I'm paying something to him. And so he owes me something in return. And it was news to me, so I hope it's news to you that God owes us nothing because he gave us everything. And therefore, when we pray to him, we do not enter his throne room flippantly or casually. No, but we enter his throne room with fearful respect and with love, knowing that we are not here to get anything from him, but we are here to love him desperately because we want to commune and speak with the creator of the universe, and we have the opportunity to do it and that it is a privilege. I hope that we begin to see things that way. I think that's what adoration means, that it reshapes our prayer life, and we learn to worship every day when we pray. I, I think, maybe, that's what it means for us. And as those things in our prayer life call us to action, I think they have an opportunity to change our lives and to change the lives of those around us. Which brings us to our commitment today. And our commitment is simply this. I will allow my love and respect for God to lead me to action this week. It means I will love my, allow my adoration for God to lead me to action this week. I will not allow my prayers to just be prayers, but I will allow them to lead me to action. I will not allow myself to enter God's presence casually or flippantly this week. That's what that means. But with fearful respect and with love as I pray and talk with him. This week, you may not wake up and start praying, and God may not fill your house with his robe. Angels may not appear around you. He may not speak to you from a whirlwind like he did Job. But in my final point, I want you to make no mistake. When you pray, you enter the very throne room of God. When you pray, you enter the very throne room of the creator of the universe. When you pray, you are surrounded by angels. The Bible says that in God's throne room, there are angels with six wings, two that cover their eyes, two that cover their feet, two with which they fly, and they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his majesty, and when you pray, you enter their presence. Please, I beg of you, and I beg of myself, because I need this desperately, this message, I need it. 
that we did not enter prayer casually, but we realized that when we pray, we enter the throne room of God. May we not assume that we own it. It is not our house. May we not enter his throne room as though it is ours and he owes us something for stepping foot in it. But may we enter his throne room in fearful respect and love. And out of that, may he change us this week. Pray with me. Father, don't allow us to enter your throne room casually even now. I would ask if there are hearts today that you needed to change or things that needed to land on people's minds that you would just allow it to do that. I pray that I would have been invisible this morning and that your presence would have been visible through everything that happens here. May we glorify you in what we do. May we not approach you casually or expecting to get something from you. But may we approach you each day in fearful respect and love, knowing that you are God, the creator of everything, and you love us desperately. In your name, amen.